0: You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Did you know that Young Clergy Network is having not one but two conferences in 2018? Tickets are on sale now for YCC OKC March 4-6, through and you can join our newsletter at youngclergy.net for the latest updates on YCC East coming to the Mid-Atlantic District in the fall of 2018. With so many incredible books coming out this holiday season, we wanted to introduce you to a few of our new favorites. This author's story features Reverend Tara Beth Leach, lead pastor of Paznaz in California. Her book, Emboldened, A Vision for Empowering Women in Ministry, is available now. And hey, thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bollerjack and I'm here with my guest, Tara Beth Leach. She's the lead pastor of First Church of the Nazarene in Pasadena, California. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Britt. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So, the first question I ask everybody is How did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene?
1: Yeah, well, so I did not grow up going to church regularly. We grew up um, going to a Lutheran church. But um, I wouldn't say it was consistent. We definitely went during Christmas and Easter. I was baptized in the Lutheran Church and confirmed into the Lutheran Church. And around eighth grade, I started to have a stirring in my heart for something more. Mm. I, then I couldn't put my uh, finger on what that was, but it was just really hungry for something divine, mm. something holy. Yeah. And uh, early on, I began having conversations with God. I began journaling out prayers. I recall going on walks in the woods as an eighth grader and singing songs to God that I was making up or songs that my grandmother would sing to me. And... By the time I got into high school, that just continued to grow, and I was even asking my mom uh, to take me to church on Sunday mornings, and I can even remember staying up really late at night at a sleepover, and she would pick me up and take me to church, but I still just was unable to quench the thirst that I had. Mm. And so by the time I was in high school, there was a local Youth for Christ chapter uh, in our school that had a, an outreach called Campus Life. And I would often see the students around school talking about campus life, and uh, they would ask one another, are you going tonight? Are you going tonight? And I would even hear them talk a lot about Jesus as if they knew Jesus in a, in a real way. And that was really interesting to me. Mm. And I found myself just longing for someone to tell me. Um, I would hear students talk about it on the bus, and I would think, oh, Will they invite me tonight or will mm. they tell me about Jesus? Because I actually really wanted to know. I was so, so intensely curious about mm. Jesus. And so the, even the local campus life director would show up in our cafeteria and go from table to table and pass out invitations. And I would just be sitting there praying, oh, I hope he comes to my table. I hope he comes to my table. And actually, he never would. Wow. And so I just decided to take matters into my own hands mm-hmm. and just show up um, without an invitation. And so one Monday night, my mom picked me up from swim practice practice and I told her I really wanted to go to campus life. So she happily took me and dropped me off. And I walked in and awkwardly stood there as a teenager, really didn't talk to anyone. And um, some of the Youth for Christ leaders, the volunteers would awkwardly come up to me and try to strike conversation. (laughs) And it was all just awkward, but I didn't really care. I felt uncomfortable, but I also really wanted to hear about Jesus. Mm. And so as the night went on, uh, a high school student got up and shared her testimony about a missions trip that she had taken to Egypt. And they were also promoting a mission trip to Mexico. And as I listened to the promo um, about this missions trip, I thought, okay, that's it. Um, if I go to Mexico, I will find what I'm looking for. That's it. I need to go. So I went to the back of the room and I signed up. And the youth leader, Tom Brands, um, said, that's great. We're so excited you want to come to Mexico, but I don't, I don't know you. So how about we have coffee the next morning at the local Hardee's and we'll bring one of our volunteers. So that next morning I met Tom Brands and another volunteer at a Hardee's and, and we um, we had breakfast together and he was really just trying to learn more about me, reflecting back. I know he was trying to get my temperature, whether or not I knew Jesus or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, Youth for Christ is is an, um, incredibly um, evangelistic. And so, uh, you know, he was asking me questions. He, um, he, he asked me the ultimate question if you were to walk out this door right now. And get hit by a bus and you were to die and stand before the pearly white gates of heaven. Why would Jesus say that he would let you into his perfect, sinless heaven? Mm. And I awkwardly just like stumbled over that question. I had no idea uh, how to answer it. And actually, quite quite frankly, scared me a little bit. And um, of course, I tell people never use that as an evangelism tool. Right. Um, Sure. But by the grace of God, um, God was still pursuing me through that. And Mm. so even through our um our terrible efforts at evangelism um, thank goodness for prevenient grace always at work mm-hmm. even through that and so he encouraged me to start reading my Bible to prepare for the mission trip at Mexico in Mexico and so I went home and I found a Bible that my grandmother had given me and I opened it opened it up and in the front it had a reading plan on um, how to get through the Bible And I chose the three-month reading plan. I was really Mm. motivated. (laughs) And so for three months, I began reading my Bible every Mm. single night. And it became an obsession for me. I would go to swim practice, come home, eat dinner, and run up to my bedroom as fast as I could. And would just lay down on my bed and just read my Bible. Mm. Sometimes for hours um, until my eyes were too heavy. And read through the Old Testament pretty quickly got to the Gospels, read Matthew, Mark, and then by the time I got to the Gospel of Luke, I decided that I wanted to read it all in one sitting that night. And as I was reading it, I was so utterly captivated by uh, Jesus. Mm. Luke's Gospel is just an incredible uh, picture of the compassion of Jesus, the way that he pursues those who are considered to be outside of the people of God, mm. those who are considered to be outside, you know, according to the religious elite, that those that are considered to be outside the plan of God.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the widow, um, the outcast, the mourning. I mean, Jesus just time and time again chooses them. Mm. And I was just so in awe of that Um you know, even for me as a high school student, I was full of insecurities. And I think all high school students go through periods where they think they're the outcast or they're the weird ones, you yeah. know, just as we're awkwardly trying to find our places. And so for me and my small mind, my small teenage mind, I related to a lot of those people. Yeah. And it felt like to me that Jesus had been pursuing me. Oh. And so by the time I got to The Cross, I was completely devastated. It was like watching a really bad movie and you know what the ending's going to be. But even still, you know that the ending is going to not end while you're still screaming at the screen saying, no, no, stop, stop, turn the other way, run. Mm. And it was like that when I was reading uh, The Cross. I just, I didn't want it to happen, even though I'd already read it. I just did not want it to happen. And at the same time, uh, reading through at that time, everything made sense. Yeah, I understood it. It was a just a big aha, and I was so overcome um, by the faithfulness of Jesus and by His love and compassion in the face of evil mm-hmm. um, that I got down on my knees next to my bed, and um, I put my hands out with my palms up in the air, just in a posture of surrender. And the only words that I could get um, to come out of my mouth were, Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And um, I wanted to say other things. There were so many things I wanted to say to God. um, But the only things that could come out of my mouth were, Thank you, Jesus. And I just... Um, sat there on my knees for a very long time just weeping as tears were just drenching my Bible in my bed just saying thank you Jesus and that moment was the beginning of just a series of yeses to Jesus and um, at that time we were our family was still a part of the Lutheran church and, um, but for me, it just, as a, as a young, very, at that time, then very really passionate Christian, um, we, I began searching for a church and, um, ultimately our family one by one was totally transformed by Jesus in a very short season, quick season. It was just an incredible movement. And we ended up at College Church of the Nazarene in Bourbonnais where Dan Boone was the pastor at the time. Mm-hmm. And Dan Boone took our family in. He took me in, and um, and it was also about that time that I was called into ministry. Yeah, tell so, me about that. Yeah, so I um, shortly after I had that experience in my bedroom where I surrendered to Jesus, I took a mission trip to Mexico, and I was so on fire, so on fire. And we were doing a Bible study with a youth leader. He was doing a Bible study on becoming fishers of men. Mm. And he, um, halfway through the Bible study, he stopped and he said, If you're here and you feel like God is calling you to be a fishers of men, if you feel like God is calling you into full time vocational ministry, I want you to stand up. And. He asked us to close our eyes and bow our heads. And um, he said, I just want you to stand up if that's you. And um, I was just so overcome. And for a moment, I remember opening up my eyes and looking around the room thinking, who is it? Who's <laughs> God calling into to <laughs> ministry? Because it's certainly not me. Mm. But at the same time, my palms were sweating. My heart was beating. And uh, I didn't hear an audible voice, but definitely a very holy, stirring, divine voice that just simply said, it's you, Tara Beth. And so I stood up in that moment, and it was as though just the weight had been lifted from my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, a moment that's hard to explain, mm-hmm. it's hard to put into words, yeah. um, but it was very freeing. And I just wept uncontrollably, actually, for hours. Uh, the youth leaders didn't know what to do with me. Um, after hours of crying, mm. <laughs> I think they, at one point they asked if you know I needed to call my parents. They wanted to know if I needed to go home. And, and really, it was just I was so shook from the experience that I had of God calling me into ministry mm. um, because it just it just felt like my world was flipped upside down because I had no idea what ministry meant. Mm. I had zero imagination. For what it looked like for a woman to be in ministry. I just mm-hmm. knew that God was calling me and calling me to take a faithful step forward. But when it came to a vision or imagination for women in ministry, it was severely anemic. Yeah. I'd never seen a female pastor. Wow. I had never heard a woman preach. Mm. I um, had never even seen a female youth pastor or youth leader. And so it was really scary for me because I couldn't, even though I knew God was calling me, I couldn't imagine myself anywhere. So I thought it was missions. Mm. I'd heard about female missionaries on sure. the mission field. And yeah. so, and since my calling happened while I was on a short term mission strip, it made sense. And so I really had to go through a really long, difficult season of working through what it meant to be called mm. into full-time vocational ministry. And so, um, and even early on, you know, it, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it weren't for Youth for Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so grateful for that ministry and the ways that I, I was introduced to Jesus through that ministry and even called into ministry. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, it, I was really mixed up uh, for a season. Um, that particular um, Youth for Christ chapter did not um, endorse women as senior pastors or mm-hmm. women as pastors. And so um, there was a time I was sitting in a Bible study, and we were doing question and answer time with our youth leader where we could write any question we wanted on a slip of paper and put it in the middle, and the youth leader would pull it out. And I asked, if I'm called into ministry and I'm a woman, can I be a pastor? And the youth leader pulled it out, and he looked over at me. I, he knew it was me. Yeah. And he took a deep breath, and he said, no, women cannot be pastors. Ugh. And he talked about some of those um, problem passages, you know, that um, women must be quiet and what that means. And he talked, uh, talked about the order of creation, and mm. he talked about authority. And I was absolutely <sighs> crushed, mm. just crushed. Because at that point, um, I had a serious burning passion to preach Um, even though i didn't really have a vision for it i just was and anyone who's who has a passion to preach would be able to identify with this 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 sense that if you don't preach you're going to explode and that's how i felt even at that age Um, there was even a time where i was driving down a country road with some girlfriends and we were listening to my redeemer lives by nicole c mullen and i was so excited um I pulled over my car on the side of the road in the middle of the cornfields, and I pulled out my Bible, and I just started to preach like a crazy woman Mm. to the cornfields. (laughs) Um, And um, I just had, you know, and even by by that point when my parents were then on fire for the Lord, we talked about, oh, you know, getting a bus and setting up tents and telling the world about Jesus. And because for me it was just, I had experienced something so profound. Yeah about with jesus and i wanted everyone else to know what i had experienced and i wanted everyone else to experience what i knew
2: Mm.
1: and so uh i mean literally i wanted to go tell down the mountain over the hills and everywhere i wanted to proclaim it from the rooftops that jesus is alive Mm. and so if that meant preaching i wanted to do that so i was absolutely crushed that i couldn't preach yeah well it was a little bit later after that then that i heard of beth moore And Beth Moore was the first woman that I ever saw preach. Mm-hmm. And she, I mean, she preaches with power. Yeah. And um, and so at that time, I thought, well, if I can't preach to men, then I can do what Beth Moore does. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I
1: can preach to women. Sure. I can preach Bible studies to women. And so then that became just my ideal direction. Um, and so... Then I enrolled into Olivet Nazarene University and studied ministry there. And Dan Boone was still my pastor and also professor, and he worked really hard to set me straight. Mm. Uh, he spent a lot of time with me and talked about what um, how to, how Nazarenes look at some of those problem passages. He gave me a Wesleyan holiness perspective of women in ministry. I started reading books about women. Um, early on in the Holy, Wesleyan Holiness movement, yeah. and the incredible evangelists and preachers and theologians and writers, and reading about women in the early um, Holiness movement was what really kind of just expanded. I mean, obliterated my imagination. Really, yeah. took it from anemic to to a really big. God-sized vision, if you will. Mm. And um, and that's why I always like to say, too, women in ministry is not a recent liberal agenda. Yeah. But it's traditional. So call me traditional. Mm. I'm for women in ministry. Call mm. me old school. Um, I'm for women in ministry. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing right now is not um, the church selling out, but it's a church going old school. Mm. And and that is, that is now my hope for our denomination at large. So... Um, so I came out of Olivet Nazarene University pretty um, convinced women could, um, because of the Spirit of Pentecost, because of uh, the faithfulness of Jesus, and really the entire story of God. I mean, women in leadership, um, in large capacity positions, has has been a phenomenon since since the beginning. Yeah. So by the time I graduated from Olivet, I was I was ready, um, and I was ready to take the world on for Jesus. Mm-hmm. I was ready to preach Jesus to the world, and I enrolled, or um, I accepted a position in upstate New York as an associate pastor at Owego Church of the Nazarene. And that was an incredible season for me. Um, Really, um, a season where my confidence was built up. Mm -hmm. I had lots of opportunities to preach. Mm -hmm. The senior pastor, um, Dr. Dennis King, was so supportive of me, was so loving, so nurturing. Um, and gave me a beautiful vision of what a nurturing pastor looks like, mm. um, which is really beautiful. And even getting to see that in in a man, um, he was so he is so vulnerable in the way he leads. Mm. And I think even he is expanding the imagination of what men in ministry can look like. That's awesome. Yeah, and so. Um, so after, though, our time in Owego, we ended up back in the Midwest and then um, eventually in Chicago, and um, that became a desert season for me. Yeah. I think all of us at some point in time in ministry experienced the desert. I mean, I'm assuming. Um, I know I'm not definitely the only one. We've yeah. been there. And that was the desert season for me, and that was when I started to have an awakening to the reality that... Um, that just because we are part of the Wesleyan holiness tradition does not mean that everyone is inclusive of women. Yeah. That was a wake-up call for me. Mm. And I started to look around. It was like, like in the Matrix when you take the pill mm. and all of a sudden you see the world differently. I started to see the world differently and look around and see just how heavily saturated our denomination is with men mm-hmm. um, from the top down. Yeah. And um, and how just you walk in a Sunday morning and more than likely you're gonna see men on the platform. Yeah. Um, and even for me, I experienced it in a really personal way. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through a season of phone calls and emails, phone calls and emails to district leaders and just not even getting a call back. Mm um uh, felt pretty invisible yeah. and um, even felt um, just forgotten, I guess, because I was watching a lot of Olivet grads of my friends um, participate in a new church planning movement, and I wanted to be a part of that, um, but that opportunity was never given to me, even mm. though I asked for it. Yeah. And even at one point, someone called me and said, you know, I'd love to help you, but I can't help children's pastors. Mm. I had never been a children's pastor before. That definitely was not my calling. And it's it's a shame that he even assumed um, that that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. There was another gathering that I went to um, on the district, and I looked around the room, and there were 88 leaders in the room and two women. It was me and a professor. And I sat down at the table, and um, and it, actually that was a regional gathering. Um, I sat down at the table, and um, a leader looked over at me, and he said, In um, and, and what church are you a children's pastor?" Um, he just made that assumption, and so I really just became aware that this oh. is an issue, that this is an issue in that we haven't arrived, and um, and that really we are that our denomination has embraced modernism,
0: yeah.
1: um, and not tradition.
0: Yeah. That's where we sold out. Yes. We stopped
1: having women in ministry. Exactly. We've totally sold out and we gave into the 1950s, 1960s, yeah. um, um, modernist movement. And so, so after six months of nowhere to go, um, I decided, um, that it was time to look elsewhere. Yeah, And so I, Ended up um, working at a non-Nazarene church and was out of the Nazarene church for a really long time. And um, being out of the Church of the Nazarene for a season ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me, though, because it gave me um, the opportunity to step out of our denomination while still maintaining my credentials, but to step out of our denomination and see another world out there yeah. of what, um, churches are like, of, of church models of ministry, mm-hmm. of different perspectives. Yeah. You know, cause it's so easy, um, in our denomination to think that we are kind of the center of the universe mm-hmm. and to think that, and you know, and oftentimes we think awfully highly of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that stepping out of the denomination helped me step back into it with a new and beautiful perspective, but also an appreciation. Um, I went through a season where I asked whether or not I was really Wesleyan Holiness. Mm. And so I started to explore other traditions and really um, double down on theology. And and this was then when I was going to um, seminary, to Northern Theological Seminary. Mm. And interestingly, um, it was at a non-Nazarene seminary that I discovered that I was a Wesleyan holiness girl. Oh, wow. And interestingly, it was an Anglican professor, Scott McKnight, who told me that I was Wesleyan holiness (laughs) um, and told me that it was time to get back to the Church of the Nazarene. And so so it was a non-Nazarene seminary that... That really thrusted me back into um, the Church of the Nazarene and gave me a mm. uh, real, a passionate appreciation for my Wesleyan holiness heritage and roots. Yeah. And so, after being out of the denomination for a long time, um, I ran into Carlos Sunberg. And and when I say out, I was serving in a non-Nazarene church, mm-hmm. um, but I was still trying to stay really involved. I was attending. Um, Nazarene um, you know district events and even um, denomination um, events at large mm-hmm. and just trying mm-hmm. to show up and be present
2: Yeah, um, just to
1: say that I'm here don't forget about me um, I love our denomination I'm a Nazarene pastor um, and I ran into Carla Sunberg and Carla Sunberg and I talked for a while and we lamented together we cried together we prayed together and she looked at me and she said, we're going to get you back. She said, right now you're a Nazarene pastor on loan and we're going to get you back. Yeah. And she asked me if I was willing to move. Um, mm. And I said, absolutely. We, we would totally move. So at that time I would graduated from seminary. There was, there was a good season because I was a seminary student working on um, a, a very large master's of divinity degree. The seminary that I went to was, still had the large, big, old MDivs. Yeah. Um And so it took a while. It took me six years. Mm. And, um, so at that time I, you know, was done and I couldn't move. And, um, so about a month later, Carla Sundberg called me and she said, Hey, um, so there's a church that might be interested in you. I don't want you to get your hopes up because you probably won't get the job. It's a big church. It's, tradi- it's a uh, old church, like the second oldest church in our uh, tradition. And, uh, she's going on talking about it for 20 minutes and, it was almost like she was like, well, aren't you going to ask me what the name is? Because she says, do you want to know what church it is? And I said, well, yes, tell me already. And she said, well, it's, it's Paznaz. Mm. And it just took my breath away. Um, I thought this has to be a joke. Um, of course, I knew what church Paznaz was. It's, um, it was on my radar, but not on my radar in such a way that I thought I would ever have the chance to talk to a church like that. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes in our tradition, women go into churches and um, that are dying, um, that are close to closing its doors. And I thought for sure that would be my first call, yeah. um, which would have been a culture shock for me, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been harder for me to step into a small church context because when I was in Chicago, um, the two churches that I spent a long time in um, were very large churches above 5,000. Wow. And so... I, small churches at that point would have been really foreign to me. Yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time I was willing, um, at that point I was open and ready to be a senior pastor and was willing to go. And so, um, so, but I thought it was a joke. I just thought there's no way. Um, and I, and she said to me, she said, don't get your hopes up. You're probably not going to get it. You know, there's a lot stacked up against you, and um, she said, "But I think you should go through the process. It would be really good for you. It'd be a good experience." Sure. And uh, she was right. There was a lot stacked up against me, Um, and but I did decide to go to the through the process. But in the beginning, I was very um, emotionally detached Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be hurt. I knew that it was unlikely that I would get this, and that it would be pretty crazy for a church to call a mid 30s um, female. Um, fresh out of seminary and had never been a senior pastor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even early on when I was talking to Larry Wrench, who was the head of the search committee, uh, we connected right away. We just clicked. And early on our conversations were awesome. And I remember him saying to me, he said, well, this would be easier if you were a man. <laughs> mm. um, you know, because we knew there was a lot stacked up against me. Um, But at the same time, he really just didn't feel like that he wanted to do the easy thing. He said, I don't feel like I'm supposed to do the easy thing. I feel like I'm supposed to do the right thing. And I'm supposed to do um, what God could be leading us to. Mm. And so even presenting my name to the search committee and then to the board was risky, scary. I mean, he was putting himself out there, um, to say that I really believe in this woman to say that, yes, I know, you know, she may not have the same credentials as what we've historically had, but maybe we don't need someone with the same credentials. Maybe it's time we have something different. Mm. And, um, and after a couple of months of talking, it was January of 2016 that it just catapulted. Um, it went from zero to 60 pretty quickly. Um, I was flying out there in February and March, and um, they voted in April and then I was installed as a senior pastor on May 22nd, 2016. Wow. And it's been 18 months just about. and it has been a wild, awesome, amazing, hard, um, ride. I mean, there's, there are times where I'm flat on my face in tears saying, this is so hard Lord. And there's times where on top of the mountain saying, I can't believe I get to do this Lord.
0: Mm. Gosh, that's awesome. So in the middle of all this craziness, you've written a book, um, and soon to be published by university press. Tell me about that journey.
1: Yeah. So that's crazy. A lot of people don't realize that, um, I started writing the book before Paznaz ever came into the picture. Mm. And so it would appear that I wrote, you know, that I got to Paznaz and all of a sudden I got a book deal. Mm. Um, But actually it's kind of crazy. So since I for a while struggled finding our place, finding my place in our denomination. Um, There's a ministry um, called Miss You Alliance that became my tribe Mm. um, and my people in a lot of ways. And so that became a ministry that I started getting really involved with and writing for regularly. And there is a woman in that ministry. She is a senior pastor, the first female senior pastor in her denomination, which is the Restoration Movement. Mm. Her name is Mandy Smith, and she has written a book called The Vulnerable vulnerable pastor, which is just amazing. And Mandy and I were speaking together at a conference. And um, by that point, I had just six months earlier, she was speaking at a conference, a Missy Alliance conference. And I just sat there. And every time she got up to speak, I just wept. Mm. I just wept. Um, because I, at that point, I'd seen female leaders, but she was the first female senior pastor I'd ever seen that also wasn't a co-pastor with her husband. Mm. So right now we see a huge movement of women senior pastors that are co-pastoring with their husbands, which is amazing and beautiful. Um, but still, I'd never seen one that was married to a lay person. I mean, my husband is a layman. He loves Jesus. He loves a church, but I still didn't know what it looked like. Yeah. And so every time she got up to speak, I just would cry. Mm. Because it just, the way she led was, I could, I under, I felt like I understood her. Um, the way she led was very vulnerable, mm. very nurturing, very real, very raw. And um, I could relate to that. Um, her style, I could relate to. And whenever whenever I watched her lead, it was as though I was getting permission mm. to be me. I was getting permission to lead um, exactly how I'm wired. And so... I remember at the end of the conference, I went up to her, and I was so nervous um, to say hi to her. But I just wanted to tell her what her ministry had meant to me at the conference. Mm -hmm. And um, she thanked me, and I thought, she's never going to remember me. I mean, she's so cool. (laughs) um, And so, yeah. And so six months later, we were speaking at a conference together, and they needed someone to pick her up from the train station. And this conference also happened to be the launch of her book, The Vulnerable Pastor. Mm -hmm. So I was like the first one to respond to the email. I probably responded to the email in 30 seconds. I'll pick her up. (laughs) Um, And she didn't know me, but I picked her up from the train station. We had lunch there. And I was like an hour late. I got really lost. It was so mortifying. (laughs) Um, But she was so gracious um, with her beautiful Australian accent. She's from Australia. Oh, wow. And she was so gracious. And we uh, sat together at the train station and... um, since her book was also with University Press, and that was her book launch, she um, had to go to the University Press headquarters and get a tour. Mm. And as we were on our way, she's like, hey, you know, because originally I was just going to drop her off and then come back and pick her up. Oh, right. And as we were on our way there, she's like, you know, would you, would you like to come in with me and mm. experience this with me? And it was this crazy thing because I hardly knew her. I admired her. She hardly knew me. And it was like our friendship was just formed as I got to be there, a part of her book launch. And she was treated like just this celebrity walking into IVP. They had signs, welcome, Mandy Smith, author. And, <laughs> um, you know, they were parading her around and introducing her to everyone. And um, it was just this beautiful moment for her. And I got wow. to witness that. And... Um, and so, so then we go to the conference together, and her editor, Al Shee, who is an editor for InterVarsity Press, was there at the conference. And um, by that time, uh, I was writing really um, passionately um, over at Missy Alliance on women in ministry. Mm. It was like I went through this crazy season where I was just like on fire, and I was um, frustrated with a couple leaders in our denomination, and I... Um, I wanted to write and just to help them see. So there was a post that um, I wrote, dear, dear men um, um, in ministry or dear pastor something like that. Um, and it was an open letter to mm. male pastors and male leadership.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, and so I was talking about some of those things with Mandy. And Mandy said to me, she said, you should write a book about it. I said, oh, wow, I don't know, you know, we'll see. And uh, we get to the conference and she was really pushing it. She's like, I really want to introduce you to Al. I really want you to talk to him about a book. And she said, I know you have a book in you and um so during the lunchtime she you know called me over she's like Terabeth, Beth you need to sit and spend some time with Al and tell him about you know this book and i'm like what book <laughs> yeah <You know? laughs> but uh, you know i'm like okay and so i sit down with al and then she gets up and leaves us it was almost like you know in high school when someone's trying to set two people up they're like you two need to talk and then they leave <laughs> um and so then she gets up and she just leaves us and so oh, i'm wow. like okay what am i going to say to this guy and so I just, like, in an instant, the book idea, Emboldened, came to me.
0: Wow. And
1: even the name, I said, you know, okay, if I were to write a book, I'd call it Emboldened. And and I just spout out the outline of Emboldened. I mean, it's almost the same.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and just spouted out, like, every chapter. And he's like, yeah, that sounds like something we'd really be interested in. Can you send us <sighs> a proposal? And, um, and it's awesome too. just, you know, something I talk about, just the importance of amplifying the voices of others, yeah. especially as women, um, because it's really scary to do, um, especially with the myth of scarcity and tokenism being an actual legit thing that is still happening with yeah. women in our denomination and at large. Mm. And so we think if someone else gets an opportunity, we think that means, oh, no, I'm not going to get it. And Mandy Smith and I recently did a podcast and she shared like how scary that was, you know, if I empower her, does that mean I'm going to get less opportunities or, Mm. but she boldly did it in just such a beautiful and courageous way. And so, so I went home and I, within a few days, pulled together this massive proposal. Um, Proposals are surprisingly overwhelming, um, but I pulled it together. I sent it to my mentor, um, Scott McKnight, and I, I run a lot of things through him, and um, and he responded back with just the most beautiful email. I mean, I just cried when Aww. I read it, and he said, yes, this is your book. Ugh. You need to write this. You need to write this. And um, I sent it to Mandy Smith, and she had spent hours helping me edit the proposal, and, um, and then I sent it off to University Press, and um, about a month later, they came back and said, let's do this. Um wow. Sign the contract, and then Paznez." started happening Mm. um so I had about 60 percent of emboldened happen um or uh written Mm -hmm. um by the time I got to PASNAS okay gotcha um and so and then I still had a year left to Mm. complete it Mm -hmm. almost a year like eight months um and so and it's funny I mean once I got to PASNAS my life was just like (laughs) um saturated with busyness, oh, and so yeah. it was really, the only time I was able to write was when I left and got away, mm. so I had a friend there, she um, she sent me to San Francisco and put me up in a hotel room, and just said, lock yourself in the hotel room for a week, and I did, and went up to a cabin that someone let me stay in, and, um, but, so it was um, two years total from, mm. um, you know, conversations to release date, wow. and so it's... It feels like my baby is is being released in the world, and it feels like my naked journal is being released in the world yeah. um, because embolden is personal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was birthed out of some healed wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean wounds that are now healed. Yeah, um, it was birthed out of just a, a deep longing to see our church go old school. Um, to go back to its roots, and to claim the kingdom vision that is rooted in Scripture. And it's time for us um, to return to that, to the kingdom vision, and Mm -hmm. it's time. And so even for me at Paznaz, my situation for some is seen as an anomaly and as unique. While I do think it's important that I steward this right now, I hope that this isn't long um, I hope that we continue and we are seeing a groundswell I am meeting just exceptional young women, I mean including you, Britt. I mean Aww. you just are amazing. <sighs> well, thanks for that. And um, I'm just seeing a groundswell of incredible, sharp, dynamic preachers that I hope the older ones in our generation look at them and say, you remind me of when I was a child Mm -hmm. and I saw a holiness evangelist come through and preach. Mm -hmm. And I think that we will start living into that vision and it's going to happen and that my situation will no longer be an anomaly Mm -hmm. and that tokenism will no longer be a thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. So kind of give me a rough sketch. Like, what is the book about?
1: Yeah. So the book is called Emboldened, of course, and the um, and then it's a vision for empowering women in ministry. And so it is sectioned in two parts. Um, part one is the emboldened woman. And then part two is the emboldened church. Mm. And so part one is definitely for um, a, any, really any woman in the church, because we're all called. We are all called to participate in the mission of God. We are all called to use our gifts. Mm. Um, the issue is, for some, they think there's a ceiling. Yeah. And so um, we, we begin with the premise that there is no ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, nowhere in the book do I argue why there's no ceiling. Mm-hmm. We just begin with that premise. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, just said it straight in the beginning that this is not a book to paint. This is not a, a theological exp- expose or exegesis on why. Right um, women can be in ministry. And I say those books have been written, mm-hmm. um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: blue parakeet, for example, yep. um, junia, uh, you know, those books have been written. Yep. So this is for those that already agree with it. Mm-hmm. And so this is a kind of part two. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yes, we all believe that women can be in ministry. Mm-hmm. Now what? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's for the women. Um, part one is to encourage women who are in the desert, mm-hmm. Um, who are having difficulty imagining what their role is within the body of Christ, mm. um, who are wondering if they, although there is no ceiling, we still put those ceilings there, um, whether we realize it or not, through yeah. um, systems. Mm. And so, you know, encouraging women to see past those systems and how to continue forward and live into that vision. Mm. And, you know, some of those um systems are cultural constructs some of them are actual realities that women just naturally have to overcome some of them are things that um really hinder us and so chapter two is something that was very real for me it's called imposter syndrome Mm. and um and we I, i deal with just the reality that oftentimes women in um Uh, academic settings professional settings and even in a church when we start recognizing that we have gifts and if we have opportunities to use them we feel like an imposter yeah and um i i didn't know that i struggled with imposter syndrome until um, i was emailing back and forth to the professor and mentor and i told him about you know a struggle or i told him about an opportunity that i had and i said i don't feel like i should take this and all he did was email back and he said, have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? And I Googled it and I started reading about it. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is me. Yeah. And, um, and so part one talks about a lot of things like that. Um, and then part two with the emboldened church, um, there's, there's a chapter in there just for men and so this is a, this is not just a book for women. Yeah. This is a book for the church. This is a love letter for the church yeah. to embrace her vision mm-hmm. um, rooted in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a chapter there in men. There's a chapter on the family, what it means to be a family. And also we talk about singleness, mm-hmm. um, which needs to be talked about more. Yeah. And um, I talk about um, women's ministries. Um, And the just appropriate, um, a a better reframing of how we view women's ministries. Um, And the final chapter is the emboldened church. Mm. And I'm just painting the vision of what an emboldened church is of men and women partnering together um, with shared leadership and what Carolyn Custis James calls the Blessed Alliance.
0: Well, tell me kind of about the, like, nitty-gritty, like, what is, what was it like for you to write this book? Would Do you have a routine, like, when you write, how you write? Um, if you were, like, giving advice to someone about how to write a book, like, what yep. would you talk about?
1: Yeah, so it's funny, every, I've learned that every writer has their own little quirks, mm-hmm. and so, and, and you kind of have to figure out what works for you, and Great. that's what I had to do, um, especially being a pastor. Mm. Um. Every single week, pastors are devoting creative energy to writing a sermon, mm-hmm. and so to devote creative energy to anything else at times seems impossible.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, um, before I became the senior pastor, I mean, writing came pretty quick. I was able to write something like I don't know twenty thousand words in just a couple of months. Wow. And um, and it just it, for me, it's time. I cannot write in one hour time blocks. Mm. So if I were to say, you know, write an hour for every day, that would never work. Mm. Um, I have to write a day. Yeah. I need two days. I need three days, preferably a week. Mm -hmm. And because it's, you know, once the creative wheels start spinning, you can't stop them. Mm. And if you know that you're going to stop in an hour, it's like, I'm not motivated to get the creative wheels going.
0: Why even get started? Why even
1: get started? Yeah. Yeah. And so I need massive time blocks, um, and I'm like that with anything creative I do. And so um, my mentor always used to say that it's butt and seat. Mm. Um, you just have to get your butt in the seat, and you have to write. And so um, I would always look for large time blocks. Um, for me, location is important. Ambiance it has to be beautiful, <laughs> um, a beautiful space, and um, and then you just kind of have to get in the trance. You know, there's been periods in my life where I've been a runner. Mm. And there's something called the runner's high. Mm. Um, there is absolutely something w- uh, that's like a riding high where you kind of get in the flow and the trance and, you know, the drool is coming out of your mouth and you don't realize it, you know, and you're just writing. You have no idea how long yeah, it's been. Yeah, and it's just, it's awesome to get kind of stuck in that trance. Yeah. Um, and so that's when my best writing happens, when I just kind of get into the trance. And so um, there were seasons in this book where um, I wouldn't touch it for a month and mm. then I'd come back to it um, just because of busyness. And then I would just, you know do sometimes it it seems like I would write like 5,000 words at a time at Mm -hmm. once and then then stop for a while and then 5,000 words at a time Mm -hmm. you know and everyone's different you know so J.R. Forastero is just coming out with a book um, Empathy for the Devil sure and his writing process was just mind-blowing I mean he's a machine yeah he wrote like 70,000 words in like two or three months like (laughs) something crazy like that (laughs) and I cannot I mean so it took me 18 months to do 48,000 words yeah uh, or 52,000 words. And and so some people can just sit down and just like, like NT Write, you know, can write a book in a week. Mm. I think JR is kind of like that. <laughs> um, when he told me that he did 70,000 words in just, you know, a couple months, I just like was sick. I'm like, you're sick. That's messed up. Like, <laughs> get away. Yeah. So that, you know, so everyone's just different. Yeah. Um, and some chapters came together really quickly and some mm. were really hard.
0: Yeah. What's the rewriting process like? Like once you finally get the raw words on the paper, then what happens?
1: Yeah, so I once so I did a chapter at a time, but mm-hmm. I jumped around, okay. so I did it out of order. I did the easiest chapters first, <laughs> um, and then Still I some momentum, yes, exactly. Know? That's how I looked at it. Yeah, because I knew going into it there were going to be some chapters that would be really hard to mm-hmm. write. And so, um, so I did the easiest chapters first, low-hanging fruit, and then from there, um, dealt with the hard chapters. Um, and I had some friends reading it and offering feedback. And mm. um, but then when I sent it off to the editor, then they held on to it for a couple months, and they sent it to three women in ministry. Oh wow! To read it. And so what I had was then I had four versions that I had to go through. Mm. Three of them was feedback from three women who were boots in the ground ministry, and one was from my editor.
0: Have you ever met these women?
1: No, and they're nameless. Oh, wow. So they could be listening to this podcast right now. Who knows? Yeah. Um, And it's probably good because one of them was really mean. (laughs) (laughs) So it was really (laughs) terrible reading. She was just angry throughout the whole thing. She had like caps throughout, like she was yelling at me the whole time. Oops. Um, Yeah. (laughs)
0: You hope she's like nearsighted or something. She couldn't read it without caps. Yeah, no, like she
1: was just. Well, it would go back and forth between caps and no caps. So, (laughs) like, so at times she was yelling at me, and at times she wasn't. Like she hated my book, like hated it. And what was interesting was, you know, so InterVarsity Press is connected with InterVarsity. So they have, Mm -hmm. so I, the way it seemed to me was that maybe this was a campus minister, the way she wrote. And she, um, at the end of the book, she had a closing paragraph and said, well, you know, she explained why she hated the book. um, And she said, but I don't even believe that women can be senior pastors anyway. Ah. So, so that that kind of oh. was a relief to know, yeah. like, okay, she hated it's the book. You, it's not you. Yeah,
0: it's her thing. It's her
1: thing. Like yeah. she obviously just, you know. So so, but I still had to read all everyone and like then I, the from the three. So the way that it worked from the three women that read it, my editor said, okay. So he said you can decide what you want to listen to and what you don't want to listen to, and mm-hmm. then he said, but my edits always trump. Uh. Okay, and he had it. I mean there was not a page untouched from him. Oh, wow. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, so the editing process with him wasn't grammatical. It was like, mm, you really need to say more here. Or, mm, did you really mean that? Or And he called me out. Mm. Like, I mean, like he, it, and and I loved it. I mean, he was really honest. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes he'd be, you know, he'd say, that sounds a little prideful or, you mm. know, or um, or that sounds like false humility. Or, um, and I'm so glad he called it out because I'd rather him read it than yeah. someone else. So. It was significant reworks. Mm. Um, But he did say to me that, you know, since I was a first-time author, he said this is normal. He Mm. said first-time authors typically have this kind of rework. Wow. Um, And so that took me months, um, a few months, Mm. um, to work through. And it was hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Um, uh, Harder than actually writing the book. Oh, yeah. Um, So, um, but I'm so glad. And so, and then after that, I sent it in and there were no more edits, which was kind of scary because I don't know, like, if the way that I changed things was good or not. Oh, so right. like, it kind of felt like, well, here you go. Mm. And I don't know. And then, and then it went through um, multiple rounds of um, copy editing. Sure. Um, and so, um, you know, where they worked it to fit their style and, mm-hmm. and most of that, like, I didn't have to fix except for, you know, they footnote here, get permissions here or, um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, so the editing process is pretty grueling. Did you enjoy Um,
0: working with them? IVP?
1: IVP is amazing. I would work with them again. Yeah.
0: Well, what advice would you have for a woman who feels like she has a calling, um, but isn't sure where to go from there or feels like there's not a space for her? Or like, what would you say to that person?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, for me, um, the inclusion of women in all levels of leadership is about gifting. Mm. It's a gifting thing. And so I think, you know, first and foremost, go on an incredible and beautiful journey of discovering how God has wired you. Mm. And go on the path of discovery and, um, and, of course, God speaks through the church. Yeah. And so I think that um, submitting ourselves to the bride of Christ, even when she's not behaving how she should be, yeah. um, I do think there's still something beautiful about submitting ourselves to the bride of Christ and, um, and, and going through that discovery process together. Mm. And to find a pastor that is willing to mentor you, um, find someone that's willing to mentor you, to, so that you can have those opportunities to use your gifts and to exercise them. Mm-hmm. Because using our gifts um, is is how we grow. Um, and so, you know, whether it's in leading, whether it's in teaching, um, leading a Bible study, whether it's in discipling or or preaching, um, seek out opportunities. Um, if it's for full-time vocational ministry, I'm a big advocate of seminary and school. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for everyone, when we start, we think, oh, by the time I get, you know, finish. I want to be too old and I'll have no life left, you know, like (laughs) um, we have such a short-sighted perspective sometimes. But I think even if you get to do three years of ministry at seminary, after seminary, it's worth it because it's just such a growing time. Mm. Um, Or at least, you know, undergrad um, um, in ministry. And of course, district classes are a a good way to go as well. So just sit at the feet of someone. Mm. Um, And then um, I would say embrace Embrace who you are. Um, We all have been formed through a very particular walk of life. We've been formed um, in our cultural, contextual um, settings. We've been formed through our family, um, DNA. You know, there's just so many different ways we've been formed. So there is no single track in how a woman should lead. Yeah. Um, We are diverse. We Mm -hmm. are diverse. And so even You know, the conversation, uh, be feminine, I struggle. Yes, but what does that mean, right? Because that's a cultural construct. Um, And so, um, and of course, biological as well. There are things Mm. about that. But so, you know, don't um, limit yourself to fit a particular feminine picture. Mm. Um, And in the same way, don't limit yourself just because you've only seen male leaders. Don't think you have to look like that. Yeah. Um, there's been so many times for me in ministry where I'll preach or I'll lead or I'll do something and I think, wow, I don't know if that was right because I've never seen anyone do it that way before. So Mm. I must be doing something wrong Mm. and, um, embrace, embrace who you are and how God has formed you and shaped you and, and own that. Um, and so if you happen to be a vulnerable leader, be vulnerable. Mm. Um, if you happen, um, to be an emotional leader, be, be emotional, Mm. Um, don't let anyone tell you tears are bad. Yeah, um, And so, so lead exactly how God has wired you, and even if that me- feels like you're reinventing um, what it's supposed to look like, that is okay. Mm. Um, and you know, that leads me to the next thing, you know, constantly be open to reinventing every season. Mm. Um, oftentimes, as women, our seasons change. Uh, we have many different seasons. Um, whether we're married, whether we're single. Whether we're single in our 20s or whether we're single in our 30s or 40s or 50s. Whether we're a young mom or whether we are a grandma. Mm. Every season looks different. And so at times it's going to feel like you are reinventing what being a pastor looks like during those seasons. But that's okay. It doesn't change the fact that you're anointed or called. Mm. Um, It doesn't change the fact that you are gifted, even if it looks different. And then finally, I would say, just keep taking the next faithful step. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the desert seasons, taking fa- faithful steps, it might feel like we're on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might feel like we are just squealing or uh, spinning our tires. Yeah. Um, but keep taking that next faithful step because eventually you just might find that you're out of the desert and that you are exactly where you'd hoped you'd always be.
0: That's mm, beautiful. Well, the last question I ask everybody is, And you've probably sort of answered it a little bit already, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, What inspires you to stay
1: in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? I am so hopeful. Um, So, I mean, number one, I love our roots and our heritage. I love what Phineas Brzee stood for. Mm. It's one reason why I love being in Los Angeles area. Um, Just driving through what is now Skid Row Mm. and seeing that that's where... Brazil began, that he put his stake on the ground over women in ministry. Mm. He put his stake in the ground over caring for the marginalized, and those, just like Jesus, um, those who many would consider outside of the plan or the Mm. people of God, um, Phineas went for them and went after them. Mm. And and that's who we are, that's our heritage. And even with social justice um, and caring for the marginalized is not a new liberal agenda. It's old school. And so I'm hopeful. I do believe I see so many young millennial pastors that give me uh, so much hope. Um, they remind me of the early holiness days that mm-hmm. I read about. Yeah. Um. Their heart bleeds. Their hearts bleed, um, for the things that I believe God's heart bleeds for. Yeah. Um. They see the world um, in ways that I th- I believe God sees the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really hopeful for the future of our denomination. And even recently, just, you know, the general superintendents that were just elected Philly and Carla and um, Jaron Rao with um, becoming the NTS president. And so it's not just millennial pastors. We have many um, Gen Xers. We have many baby boomers and traditionalists that are just Putting a, their stakes in the ground over the things that Phineas did as well, yeah. and so I believe that um, while at times I um, lament that our denomination is not behaving as it should, mm-hmm. and that we um, we are the ones selling out, um, I see signposts of hope all over the place, and so I'm committed. Um, when I was ordained, um, I made a covenant with this with this denomination mm-hmm. uh, for sickness and through health, for yeah. richer, for poorer, and mm-hmm. so I'm here.
0: Ugh, I love that. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you or find out more about the work that you're doing. Where could they reach you? How could they find you?
1: Yeah, there's a number of ways. So I'm on Twitter, um, Terabeth82. I think um, it shows that I'm definitely a cusper and kind of on the cusp of Gen X or Millennial or some say Xennial <laughs> because I don't even know how to work Snapchat.
0: Oh, right. right. Um,
1: like, what is that? So <laughs> um, so you can't find me on Snapchat. I might have an account on there. I don't really know. Um, but you can find me on Twitter, Terabeth82. Instagram, also Terabeth82 uh, Facebook, Tara Beth Leach. I have both a page and a personal page. Um, and so those are three great ways to get in touch with me.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was so fun, Britt, and just really excited and encouraged by the Young Clergy Network. And, um, it's, it's a really, um, beautiful expression of the people of God, um, leaning into, um, just the future. Mm -hmm. It's exciting.